listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, it's no mystery, you know, the topic that we're going to we're going to talk about it's 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 Easter Sunday so there's there's no other topic to talk about but the resurrection of Jesus but I'm going to take a, kind of a different slant a unique slant hopefully um, this will give you kind of a fresh understanding of the meaning of the resurrection and the title of the sermon is the gardener and it comes right out of our text here in John chapter 20 so let's go ahead and read this passage together And then we're going to pray and then jump right into it. Verse 11 of Gospel of John chapter 20. Now Mary, and and this is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Let's hold it there for a moment. How many of you want to see something really cool in the Bible? All right, the rest of you just tune me out, but I'm going to show you something really cool, and it has nothing to do with the theme of the message. I just, the thing about the Gospel of John, John is a poet, and all throughout his Gospels, even from right at the very beginning, John just poetically has a way of composing these stories and all throughout his gospel there are like little easter eggs pun intended there are easter eggs that if that he wants he's not going to come right out and tell you about it he wants you to dig and hunt for it and if you'll dig you'll end up finding it but all throughout there's just these really cool things that john does and he has one right here in verse 12 look at verse 12 again and let's see if you can find it without me even saying anything And he saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. So here's a flat surface, a table, if you will, a slab of concrete. And on one side, you have one angel on one end, and you have another angel on the other end. So you have a flat surface with two angels on either end. What does that remind you of? The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And see, John, he's not going to come out here and just make it obvious, but he, he, just, he just tells his story in such a way that he wants you to draw these connections. And, and so he's a poet. And so pay attention to John. And don't just take him at face value. There's all kinds of cool things that he does, and you're going to see another one before the, the sermon's over. Verse 13. <clears throat> they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I just want us to pause right now and consecrate this time to the Lord. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we just pause and we gather our thoughts and our heart and we just kind of gear ourselves right now as best we know how as an act of worship, to listen to whatever your Holy Spirit might want to say to us. Your love for us is incomprehensible. And your faithfulness towards us is steadfast. And this very moment that we're in together right now is just pregnant with possibilities. Because whenever you're in the room and whenever you're speaking and we're listening and aware and sensitive. It has the capacity to transform our lives. And so that's what I hope for and seek today as I do the best I can and we do the best we can to hear from you. Speak to the core of our being and may your kingdom agenda be established in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first person to encounter the risen Christ on the morning of Easter is Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala, that's what her name means. Magdala was a tiny village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's there that Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus, and Jesus sets her free from seven demons. You know your life is a mess when you've needed to be set free from seven demons. But she encounters Jesus. Jesus frees her from this oppression, gives her her life back. And from this point on, Mary Magdalene becomes, I would argue, his most devoted follower. She's with him everywhere he goes. Like even quite literally follows him everywhere he goes. She never leaves his side. And here she is now at the garden tomb following a, a roller coaster ride. She was part of this big traveling party of, I don't know, dozens, dozens, maybe hundreds of people who are Galilean pilgrims. They're, they're journeying with Jesus from Galilee up in the north. They're going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Mary Magdalene, as well as everyone else, they're assuming, and she assumes, that when they arrive at Jerusalem this time, Jesus is going to be crowned king of Israel. Instead, within a few days, he's arrested. He's put through this sham trial. He's sentenced to die, and he's crucified. And now, on the morning after Sabbath, Mary Magdalene is weeping at his tomb. She's heartbroken, deflated, profoundly confused, and What makes her even more disoriented is that when she gets to the tomb, after everything that's happened in the last two days, the tomb's empty, his body's not there. She has no idea what to think. Her world is spinning, and she turns around, and she bumps into Jesus, the resurrected Christ. But when she bumps into him, she assumes that he's the gardener. Remember, Jesus was buried in a garden. Just a few feet away, there was a rock quarry where he was crucified. 
And one of the things we know from history is that typically when the Romans would crucify people, they would just leave their corpses on the crosses, generally, to decompose and also to kind of serve as a warning to everyone who passed by. Because they always, they always crucified people on major roads and at intersections where lots of people would pass by. Because they wanted people to see, this is what happens to, to rebels, to those who buck against our system. And so typically, they would leave the corpses on the cross, but in this case, Joseph of Arimathea, a rather wealthy, powerful man, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, kind of the supreme court of their day, but he was not consenting to the arrest of Jesus, and he was a secret disciple of his. And Joseph has enough influence to gain a private audience with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he's able to secure permission to retrieve Jesus' body from the cross, and he's going to bury him in his tomb, which was in a garden. There was a, there was a garden just outside of Jerusalem that Joseph happened to own. In fact, it was just within a very short distance from where he was crucified, and this garden belonged to Joseph. It was kind of like a walled garden. It wasn't where he lived. He lived in Jerusalem. He lived in the upper city. But, but he would visit his garden frequently. It was kind of a nice place to contemplate and reflect. This beautiful garden with flowers and plants. Uh, maybe an olive grove. And, and, and he would just go there and, and just enjoy the peace and the quiet. And at some point, Joseph of Arimathea says to himself, this is where I want my final resting place to be. And so... He does what only wealthy people could do, and he has a tomb hewn into the rock. And this is going to be Joseph's family tomb. But when this weekend happens, there's a complete change of plans, and Joseph feels inspired to give this tomb to this young Galilean prophet who has been unjustly crucified. And it's at this garden tomb where Mary turns around and bumps into the risen Christ. But it's very interesting to me that she assumes that he's the gardener. Remember, this is a garden. She's thinking, oh, here's the gardener. He's, he's here to start his work for the day. It's interesting that she doesn't see the risen Christ and think, wow, what an angel. What a spectacular sight. Or, wow, what a man of, of great noble standing. She sees him to be the gardener. And I think that's interesting if we just reflect on it. I think there's some things we can learn from this. But the main point that I want to get across this morning, and this is going to be my sermon in, in one sentence, or maybe two sentences. I'm going to preach longer than that, by the way. But, but here's the main point I want you to grab from this. When Mary confuses Jesus to be the gardener, she's not altogether wrong. Because the risen Christ is the gardener who recovers the garden of God. You see, the human story, as given to us in the Bible, begins and ends in a garden. It is the overarching metaphor of the Bible, and you find it all over the place. And that's what I want to show you today. So let's start at the very beginning. We're going to read the whole Bible this morning. No, no. Um, <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, first chapter of the Bible, just want to show you a couple things here in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in 
your likeness. As Christians, you know, we look back on this passage, and as we interpret it, we see this as a conversation happening among the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so that's why it's in the plural. So let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. Let them reign. Let them rule. Let them have authority and, and governance over, well, all of creation, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And here's what it means. Male and female, he created them. So notice in this first account of creation, on day six, so to speak, God um, creates the human, and he gives us two things. And I want you to remember these two things. The first thing that God gives is our identity. Who are we? We're image bearers. We bear, we're created to bear the image of God. His name is written on our foreheads. That's who we are. We're, we're those who bear and reflect God's image. That's our identity. And then the second thing he gives us is our vocation, our job, our role. And what is it? Let them have dominion over the earth. So we were created as image bearers to have wise governance over creation. And when I say that we're creation, I mean everything. I mean it all. I mean literal creation, animal kingdom, plant kingdom, all of that, but, but also human society and all of that entails. That's our identity, our vocation, made in God's image, and we're created to have wise dominion over the earth. Everybody with me so far? All right, uh, let's look at chapter two now, the second account of tr creation. It's a little more detailed, verses seven through nine. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden. So who planted the garden? So who's the first gardener? God. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life. Now remember this. I just want you to make note of this. Put it in your mind. I want you to remember there's a special tree in this garden. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is going to result in some serious trouble very, very shortly. And then verse 10, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. So the two things I want you to see and I want you to know that are in this garden that I want you to remember because it's going to come back. There's going to be a quiz later. There's two things that, that are in this garden that I want you to pay attention to. There's a tree and there's a river. A tree and a river. And notice how it's worded here in verse 10. The river flows out of Eden to water the garden. So there's a river that flows through the Garden of Eden and it waters the garden, but it also flows out of Eden. And I think the implication there, in fact, I'm sure of it, is that this is a garden that's meant to grow and expand. And I think this is something that we often miss when we come back to this beautiful poetic story, is that the Garden of Eden was not all of creation, it was one piece of creation. So it's almost like God purposefully creates this as an unfinished project. 
And then he forms the man from the dust of the earth, breathes into his uh, nostrils the breath of life. And then he says, I'm going to put you in the garden, and I want you to take care of this garden. I want you to tend this garden, and I want you to expand the garden so that over time, all of creation will flourish. Even human society will flourish and become garden-like, that the whole earth becomes like Eden. Amen. That's the image that the author wants us to see. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And I think by implication to expand it. Now you know what happens next, don't you? What happens next is the serpent and temptation and the choice of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life. And you have human beings saying, we can think for ourselves. Thank you very much. We don't need God or anyone else telling us what to do. We know right and wrong. We know good and evil. We can handle it. We've got this. We don't need anybody's help. And, and, and uh, we're going to do it ourselves. Anybody have like a four-year-old child ever tell you that? I can do it myself. What always happens next? They mess it up. And that's what we did. You know, we, we thoroughly messed it up. And along with that comes the curse, and with the curse comes thorns and thistles, so that instead of an expanding garden, which is what God wanted, instead of this expanding garden, what we ended up doing is we began turning God's creation and human society into an expanding wasteland. That's really what you see as the story continues in the ensuing chapters and the ensuing story of the scriptures. You see us absolutely taking what God has put under our dominion and turning it into a complete wasteland. Even to this day, we see much of our society and much of the world around us has become a wasteland. Sherry was just in, was it Poland and Ukraine? Yeah. And she saw it firsthand, some of the atrocities and some of the, the, the aftermath and fallout of, of human sin. Warfare and hatred and violence and racism and classism and poverty and world hunger, homelessness. We can make our list as long as we want, but the world's become a, a wasteland, an expanding wasteland. But the good news is that God does not intend to, this to be the end of the story. And God does not intend to give up and abandon his project that he started. No, no, there's, there is a hope in a future, as we sang a moment ago. And the prophets got a hold of this, and they began to, to see it spiritually, and they began to foretell about it. So now I want us to fast forward to the middle of the Bible, the middle of our story. And uh, we're going to look at Isaiah 51, just a few passages here. Isaiah 51, this is a, a prophetic poem. It was written after the exile. God's people were exiles in Babylon, but now they're coming back finally. And they're coming back with good news. So look at verse 3 of Isaiah 51. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And will make her wilderness. Or maybe just for today we can substitute the word wastelands. That's, what I, that's the word I used earlier. He will make her wastelands like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. So this was the vocation that was given to the people of the seed of Abraham, Israel. Israel, they were called to be, you could say, like gardeners. They were, they were given this, this incredible role and calling of God, this garden. And their job, their role was to keep the garden and take care of the garden and to begin to grow and expand this garden. But in one sense, 
Israel failed, yet in another sense, they didn't fail. Because whereas Israel, by and large, largely failed at their identity and mission and vocation of recovering and expanding the garden of God, the true seed of Abraham, the true seed of David, the suffering servant of this very chapter, Jesus Christ, he's the one who will be sent to take upon himself the identity, the mission, the vocation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to put it on my own back. And he's the one who's going to carry it through all the way to victory. And he's the one that Mary Magdalene on Easter Sunday morning recognizes as the gardener. Because in fact, he's the one who's going to begin this project of taking this wasteland that human life and society has become and he's going to transform it once again into the beautiful, flourishing garden of God. Look at chapter 55 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 8. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now watch all of this gardening imagery. I mean, it's all over the place. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Watch this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, this is the famous verse that we hear quoted all the time. You know, I, I must have heard it a billion times in my life. People quote this verse and they say, God's word never returns void. The word of God never returns void. How many of you have heard that quoted all your life? All right, now there's a problem though. The problem is how we see that verse and how we interpret it. Usually when I hear people quote that verse, you know, the word of God never returns void. They, they, mean, they mean it like this, that you know, whenever a preacher gets up on the platform and preaches the word, preaches the Bible, it doesn't matter how lousy the sermon is, somebody's going to get something out of it. <laughs> Listen, I don't even know if that's true or not. I'm just going to tell you that's not what Isaiah is talking about. What, what is the word of God? Who is the word of God? You know, when we think of the word of God, we immediately sometimes think of the Bible, and I think that's appropriate. It is the, God's word. It's, it's inspired scripture. But folks... <laughs> The ultimate setting forth of God's word is his son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The virgin conceived in, in the womb, the word of God, and the virgin gave birth and Jesus was born. And so what's being said here in Isaiah 55, and I don't even know if Isaiah even has a full understanding of what he's even prophesying. This is God's spirit speaking through Isaiah. But what's being said is that Jesus is going to fully accomplish the will of the Father to recover the garden of God. One more reading from Isaiah, uh, and here's what it's going to look like in verses 12 and 13, just a few verses later. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. They're going to give you a standing ovation. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Watch this. Instead of the thorn, remember? That represents the curse, right? Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. 
and it shall be to the Lord for a memorial for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now, one more verse in Isaiah verse 61, chapter 61, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So what grows in the garden of God? If you, how many of you have a, a garden at home? Vegetable garden, flower garden, fruit garden? All right. I'm, I'm the world's worst gardener. I can kill a plant almost overnight. People always bring their plants that are just overgrown. I don't know what to do with it. Ryan, take care of it. I'll take care of that for you. I'll kill it instantly. But what grows in your garden? If I were to ask you what grows in your garden, some of you might say, I've got petunias. I've got, well, here in Southern California, it's more like I have avocados. I have oranges, lemons. We got way too much of that around here. People bring me bags of oranges. Slow down. Relax. <laughs> What grows in the garden of God? Well, this verse, exactly, this verse just showed us. God says there's two things that grow in the garden, righteousness and praise. Now, what is righteousness? Don't over-spiritualize this. Righteousness is simply this, things being made right. That's what righteousness is, things being exactly the way God would have it to be. God's saying, you know what, there's so much that has gone wrong in the world today. So much ugliness, so much hatred, division, so much ugly poverty, disease, and world hunger. So much has gone wrong in the world, but what God is saying is, I'm gonna take this world that's gone wrong and I'm gonna make it right. I'm gonna set it right again. I'm gonna cause righteousness to spring up in the earth. And how, how is God going to do it? God's saying, I'm going to do it like a gardener. I'm going to sow seeds. It's very interesting to me that so many of Jesus' parables use the same imagery. It's, it's sowing seeds, gardening, all this kind of thing. And God's saying, I'm going I'm to make things right by sowing seeds, the seed of my word, into the world. And, and I'm going to take care of that garden. I'm going to tend it. I'm going to bless it. And I'm going to cause righteousness to spring up in the earth. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cause those that are partnering with me, we're gonna, we're gonna work to make things right, like Sherry James Taylor in Ukraine. We're gonna work to make things right. And as things are being made right, what's gonna happen naturally? Praise is gonna spring up out of our hearts. Why? Because when everything goes wrong in the world, God gets all the blame. But when things are made right, we begin to praise the glories of his grace. Righteousness and praise. That goes together, you see. So now, finally, last part of the sermon, let's fast forward to the end of the Bible. Very last book of the Bible. In fact, very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22. And here in Revelation 22, we see heaven and earth reunited. Or you might even say it like this, heaven and earth are remarried. Because they were once together, they were once married, but sin tore them apart. But God says, I'm going to bring them back together again. In fact, that's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God says, that's, that's where things are moving. That, that, that my will and my agenda and my vision is going to come true for, for the world and for human life. They're going to come together. And what is it going to look like? It's going to look like this. Verse 1, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river. Remember that river I told you about? that was flowing out of the Garden of Eden, here it is again. 
Then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, this beautiful garden city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life. Remember I told you about the river and the tree. And there they are. They're restored. They were lost. And now they're found. Paradise lost, paradise regained. All is being made exactly the way it's supposed to be. And, and this tree, it says, with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit in each month. And watch that. I love this part. And the leaves of the tree, what are they there for? For the healing of the nations. They're going to heal the nations. What is that? That's righteousness. Things being made right. We have made an absolute mess of the world and a mess of human society. We're sick, we're deceived, we've turned God's creation and God's, this, this society into a wasteland. But God says, I'm not gonna leave it that way. There's a tree that's gonna bring healing to the nations. So it's almost like Jesus, the gardener, who's recovering and expanding the garden of God, it's almost like Jesus is giving us this invitation. Do you guys wanna join my gardening club? And we say, well, what are we gonna do, Jesus? He says, we're gonna redeem the world. We're gonna transform the world. How are we gonna do it? By gardening. We're just gonna sow seeds. We're gonna get our, our hoe and break up the fallow ground and sow seeds and pull up weeds and we're gonna watch this thing grow. We're gonna watch the world healed and made right. These leaves are for the healing of the nations. Here's the last little bit, verses three through five. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore but the throne of God and of the land, Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. There's praise. So we have righteousness and praise. Verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, we're going to recover the image of God. His name will be on our foreheads. Our identity is going to be restored, and our vocation is now restored. Verse 5, last verse, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So do you see what I'm showing you today? We're right back where we started. Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, God says, let us create humankind in our own image. Very end of our story, last chapter, Revelation 22, and they shall bear the name of God in their foreheads. Our identity is restored. First chapter, Genesis 1, God says, and let them have dominion over the earth. Last chapter, very, very last phrase we just read, and they will reign forever and ever. So what was lost is now found. What the first gardener, the first Adam, lost due to the seduction of the serpent and the departure from God for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the second Adam, the final Adam, He's going to recover and restore. So when Mary supposes this stranger in the garden to be the gardener, she's not altogether wrong. In fact, she's not wrong at all. Jesus Christ is the garden, gardener who recovers and expands the garden of God, of new creation, and he invites us to be a part of it. But what we got to learn how to do as 21st century Christians is we've got to learn how to think like gardeners. We're going to change the world, yes, but we're not going to do it like crusaders and politicians 
and conquerors. It's not going to come through campaigns and conquests. It's going to come by the virtues of a gardener. So what are the virtues of a gardener? Think about it. If you're, if you're planting a garden in your yard, what are those virtues that you're going to need in order to be a successful gardener? I think of things like diligence. It's, it's every day going back to it. There's work to be done. It's not a one-shot deal. Every day, there's, there, you, know, you have to tend to the soil. You have to fertilize and water. You've got weeds to pull and things to prune. So it's constantly coming back. It's diligence, commitment, consistency. Imagine somebody who plants a garden and says, all right, I got a garden now. I'm going to spend about 30 minutes on it, and I'm going to have a garden this year. It doesn't work like that. Every day, there's attention. There's consistency that needs to be given. I think of the virtue of gentleness and patience, understanding that, that I'm, this is a long process that I'm cooperating with. I'm not going to sow seeds in the morning and get fruit by night. It may take a whole year. It may take, if I'm planting a grapevine, a young grapevine, it may take me a couple years or longer before I see grapes. I'm in this thing for the long haul. So, so we can't have, as, and, and, and we're so used to, as we said earlier, we're not consumers. We're worshipers. Consumers want it now. We're used to having everything we want right now. And that's the way we want our fruitful Christianity. And it just, it doesn't spring up overnight. And, and, and the healing of the nations is not going to come in the blink of an eye. It's, it's a slow, organic process. And we don't get rash and we don't get hasty and impatient. Come on, what's wrong with you things? Why aren't you growing? It's a slow process. In fact, this gardening project of God's, it's been going on for thousands of years, long before us, and it's going to outlast us as well, unless Jesus returns. So we have one tiny little role in a project that's millennia old. Is that grammatically correct? It's centuries old. And so we need patience, and, and then also we need trust. We need to trust the process, because as a gardener, I have to play my part, but at the same time, the heavens have to supply the rains. The heavens supply what's needed for the miracle of causing these things to grow. And that's how we change the world, with the virtues of a gardener. It's diligently sowing seed, tending to the soil, being patient about it, being gentle with it, and trusting God to bring about the miracle. And so we're joining Jesus Christ in the new creation that he's already launched, anticipating the world to come and living with him right now, helping it to be brought to pass. We don't look at the problems in the wasteland of the world and shrug our shoulders and say there's nothing we can do and just ignore it. No, if anybody in the earth is going to make these things right and partner with our heavenly gardener, it's got to be us. We've got to feel his burdens and feel his passion and begin to work together to make things right in the world. And whatever unique role Jesus would have for us to play, that's what we're called to do. And it begins with making things right in our hearts with him. And everything else flows out of that. Amen? That's what Easter Sunday is all about. And that's what I'm inviting you into. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.